0: Well, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. I am still out of breath from the 8 o'clock service. This is a long chapter, and it's even longer for an expositor. I want to pause at every verse and every nook and every cranny. And we're not going to do that. We're going to get through Daniel chapter 2, and I think whenever you see the big picture, which is the whole purpose of a narrative, it's a story written with with a plot line and a point... Uh, then you're going to be greatly I- encouraged. The title is A Dream of History, or, or you could even call it a, a primer of, of world history. And history is a subject matter that is that has fallen out of favor today, hasn't it? I mean, accurately recording the events of the past used to be a significant part of academic discipline, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of discipline or academics going on in the field today. I mean, history used to be about a precise accounting of historical events which were objective facts that, that could be documented through, through primary source uh, material and established with sufficient evidence and then agreed upon by, by everybody. And today it's a little bit more than, than useful propaganda. I mean, even history that is available that's, that's tested and proven is being rehearsed and reinterpreted and repurposed and in our day people are less concerned about facts and more concerned about taking bits and pieces to justify their positions and presuppositions, regardless of what side of the aisle they're they're on. The, the sole goal is propping up a a, a worldview. For instance, uh, modern historians uh, start with a presupposition that Western civilization is, uh, is bad or, or inherently evil um, or racist is typically thrown around today. Surely there was evil and, and racism in, in every civilization, but, but they conveniently uh, leave out with terms like imperialism that it was the English Christians that, that actually put an end to slave trade and, and, and fought against it. Read about it, read David Livingston he, how he opened up uh, Africa or William Wilberforce. secular historians on the on the other hand assume there is no meaning there, therefore there is no goal to history um, history is you've probably heard it before it's a, it's a cycle history repeats itself it it goes around and around and around, and you've got to figure out where you 're at in the revolution so so you don't uh, you know go up and then and then go down the best that you can hope for is to learn from history so it's it, you don't repeat its mistakes but it's not really going anywhere it just kind of goes there's no ultimate goal no beautiful end a his, humanistic view to history is even more depressing you just end up in the ground and the worms eat you i mean it's pessimistic and materialistic and and if you you buy into it you're going to end up fatalistic the Christian view of history, on the other hand, is altogether different. It deals with objective facts and events, but because God has given Scripture, it's purposeful. And Christian history understands, or a Christian, the way they view history, understands it's purposeful. A biblical perspective says history has a beginning and an end, it moves according to God's perfect order and plan. It's teleological, meaning it has purpose and design it's doxological meaning that the whole purpose of all of history is is to glorify God and it's Christological Jesus Christ is the is the center he's the fulcrum of of all of, of history the coming of Christ and and then now we're looking for his soon return and that's just plain logical meaning its purpose is knowable you can know the purpose of history it's moving toward a goal. History begins with creation and it ends with the consummation of all things. And accurate history then is, a, is the record of the hand of God in the events of fallen men as, as He moves it along to His appointed end. And that's what you have in Daniel chapter 2. It's history taught by God Himself. And in Daniel 2, God outlines the rise and fall of the great empires of the ancient world before they, they ever ascend. And God tells history in reverse. You and I have to wait till it happens and then, and then analyze the, the recorded events and, and then find meaning in it. But, but Isaiah 46 says God declares the end from the, from the beginning. He has the ability to tell history in reverse. And that's exactly what he does in Daniel 2. You might think of Daniel 2 like a beginner's course on world history. It's not concerned about filling in the gaps and and the details. It covers the the big picture of what's going to take place in the future of the world and the great empires that, that are part of it. One said it's like, like standing back and looking at a, at a mountain range. You can see the great empires of the world like a, like a mountain range, but it doesn't take you down into the valleys. Chapter 7 is where you get into the valleys. Chapter 2 of Daniel and chapter 7 of Daniel talk about the exact same thing. Chapter 7 gives us all kinds of detail. We're going to take at least two sermons to get through chapter 7. But chapter 2 is the, is the overview. Chapter 2 is, is like standing on the rim looking over the Grand Canyon. And, and if that's the analogy, then chapter 7 is the donkey ride to the bottom of the canyon. I mean, it's beasts and horns and all of these other things. And, and we'll make sense of all that when we get there because God's Word makes sense. But you might think of chapter 2 like a freshman course. It uh, prepares you for the senior level course in chapter 7. It's a world history uh, primer. It's World History Grammar School. And the, the lesson plan that God uses here is pretty unique. I mean, He communicates His course material through a troubling dream given to a, a pagan monarch. And His course objective is not to contemplate time charts as helpful as they, as they, they can be, but to declare something about God, declare something about Himself. This chapter provides a, a record of world events, but the reason that it's given is to declare something profound about, about God and what He's bringing about. I said, in a narrative, in a story, you have a punchline. There's a place where, where it all makes sense. What's the point of this entire story? And, and, and that verse is Daniel 2.44. Look at Daniel 2.44, just to orient you before we ever walk through it. I mean, here's the punchline of the whole point of this story in Daniel 2. In 244. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put it into all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever you remember the book of Daniel has two goals it will teach you how you're to live as strangers and pilgrims in a world that's not your home it was written to the Jewish people and then to us the Jewish people who were obviously not in their home and secondly it's to tell you about the main event that's that's coming there will be the reign of God's true king the son of man and his kingdom will be established and it will have no end and this chapter gives us a history of world empires described through this great statue. But the statue is nothing more than a backdrop for the stone that's cut without hands that, that becomes a mountain. And that's what verse 44 declares. The kingdoms of this world, they're, they're like the felt board backdrop and the, the person of Christ in his kingdom is, is what the story is all, all about. They're, they're like the chalkboard and... and he is the chalk. They're, they're like the jeweler's case and he's the diamond engagement ring under the glass. That, that's the, the focus of Daniel too. I know that you can be tempted when you have just this really long story, especially with this, this image of, of, of gold and a, a, a statue caught up in all the weeds and, and missed the main point. And you don't want to miss the main point. The main point is the eternal kingdom of God is coming. It's sure. And we are really far down on this statue. When you come to a narrative passage like this, it's helpful just to kind of stand back and ask yourself this question. What's the point? I mean, why did God put Daniel 2 in the, in the Bible? Always remember that the, the main character in the Bible is God. And so he's placed Daniel two. This story it has a beginning and an ending. It has a point, and that point it fits into what God wants to communicate. And as I said, there's there's lots of things that you could see, and they're not bad. But Daniel two didn't wasn't written to give us a, a figure for our eschatology books, or even to give moral principles. Like Daniel goes to prayer when he faces trouble, and, and so should you. Of course you should do that. But that's not the reason Daniel 2 is in the Bible. The crisis of Nebuchadnezzar's troubling dream and then the inability of the wise men to interpret it, it's a purposeful event in order to, uh, to, to lead to a Proclamation that we are profoundly limited, and there's a God in heaven who not only reveals, but He orchestrates the future, and He is moving that future along to its appointed end. And He doesn't just know the kings that are coming and can give dreams about them. He, he sets them up and takes them down. And that same God who knows and, and controls is bringing about His everlasting kingdom that will be ruled by His Son. Daniel's prayer summarizes that. That's the reason we read Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Ryan read for us. Look at what's, what's underlined there, or even in your Bibles. Daniel says, May the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the periods. He removes kings and appoints them. And he gives wisdom to... Uh, wise men and knowledge to people of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness and dwells in the light. I mean, what's the point? Daniel blesses the God of heaven who disposes kings and sets them up. And he's the one who reveals deep and hidden things. He removes and he reveals. And then the interpretation of the dream, this verse 44, this this thunderclap that comes at the end, the climax of the entire story in those days, the the God of heaven will do just that. He'll, he'll set up, he'll take down all the earthly kingdoms and he'll set up his kingdom, which will never be destroyed. And he is declaring that ahead of time. Through this troubling dream, through these unable wise men, these wise men that, are, that have an inability to do what they think that they're able to do, through humble Daniel, who turns to God in prayer, through God who gives the vision and he declares it, Everything else points to, to that conclusion. All the other details are stage players and props pointing us to God and His coming kingdom. Now, if you read this chapter, it, it, it's long, but, but you'll notice that, that it moves. There, there are scenes that God uses to bring this, this, this theme into focus. Now, there are actually five scenes in, in Daniel chapter 2. Um, the first scene is, is the king in, in his bedchamber and then in his throne room and he has this dream and he brings the, the wise men in. It's the first 13 verses. The second scene then transitions to the king's palace where, where Daniel requests more time after this execution decree goes out. Then the third scene is Daniel's home where he prays with the other three men and then God reveals the dream. The fourth scene is when Daniel goes back to the king's palace and he requests to see the king. And then the fifth scene is actually in the king's throne room again. Starts in the throne room and ends in the throne room when Daniel tells the dream and its interpretation. And the story builds in intensity. There's, a, there's this crisis because of the dream and it's finally solved and with the interpretation and Daniel sharing that with the king. And then the king makes a, an amazing declaration at the end of this chapter we'll call it um, five lessons on the basics of world history. And you won't get all of these down right now, but we'll go through them one at a time. There's five lessons on the basics, this basic course on world history. There's a dreadful dream. There's a demand that the king makes to the diviners, a disclosure to Daniel, the detailed definition. And then there's a declaration made by this pagan king at at the very end. Let's Let's look at the first one here, Nebuchadnezzar's dreadful dream. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of Daniel 2. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So, you know, chapter 2 centers around this divinely inspired nightmare given to this newly minted king, and all that's packed in the very first verse. It's his... It's his second year, uh, official year of, of rain, and, and uh, he's woken up by a dream in the middle of the night. He's so troubled, he's still concerned about it the next day. I'm sure that you may have experienced something like that like yourself. I mean, most dreams you forget. The ones that you remember, you, you want to forget. You know, you're in a field of pink bunnies and you're eating green popcorn or something like that. And what does this nonsense mean? Forget all those stupid books that tell you dreams mean this and that. They're just a bunch of nonsense. But this is a divinely inspired nightmare. literally says uh, uh, the, his sleep was done or it was finished from him. The root word means to, to strike like a hammer, hit a hammer with a bell. His bell was rung in the middle of the night and, and, and he wakes up. Rapid heartbeat you know, he's startled and he can't go back to sleep. you probably experienced that too. You wake up in the middle of the night and it's over. It's done. You go to the bathroom and you're not going back to sleep. And if you're troubled about something, it makes it even worse. And this dream is particularly troubling to Nebuchadnezzar because he's just started his reign. I mean, think about it from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. I mean, he doesn't know what this dream means. I mean, he doesn't know he's the head of gold yet. He just sees a giant statue and this boulder coming hurling from from out of nowhere, hits the statue and blows it up, obliterated. Now, if you're a pagan king full of superstitions and a dream like that wakes you up, you start wondering if something bad's going to happen to you. I mean, the Democonessor doesn't know whether he's the statue, he's the stone, he's the chaff blown away. Either way, he's really nervous right now. Scoffers try to make a lot of the uh, of the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign saying that's a contradiction from Daniel 1 because it says Daniel was trained for 3 years and this says it was his second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and the explanation is is, is really quite simple um, the first year of Babylonian kingship is considered the year of ascension, and then you start counting year one, year two after the first year. Similar to the way that, that we count birthdays. Have you ever thought about the way we count birthdays? When a child is born, they're zero, and then after one year, they're one. Chinese probably do it correct. They they start with one when you're born, and then you're two. I mean, we're we're believers, right? When is that baby real at conception? And so there's a year of ascension, and then this is the second year of his reign. And you add that up, that's three years. Nebuchadnezzar's been ruling for three years, and Daniel has finished up his training, and he'd entered the king's service. But while he'd entered the king's service, he's not in the diviner's union yet. Look at this second scene here. There's a demand that the king gives. Look if you would at verse 2. It says then the king gave orders to call the soothsayer priests the conjurers the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came in, stood before the king, and the king said, "I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream." Now Daniel is about eighteen years old, and I want you to notice that he's not part of this group that's been called before the king. Um. He graduated summa cum laude from Babylonian college, but he's not part of the old wise men's club yet. I mean, this is a very distinguished group. He didn't just break into that. And he's a Hebrew, so it would be even less likely for them to, to bring him in. And what you did, if you're a pagan king and you have a troubling dream, is you call these wise men that are listed here to to help you make sense of it. The the magicians, which are like the chief priests and enchanters or charmers, the sorcerers, which means to cut up herbs or mix things, which probably had to do with their incantations, and then the astrologers or the Chaldeans. Each had a role, but they make up a group of very powerful men in the ancient world. And you can see how powerful they are when the Magi, which are the Chaldeans, comes to Herod looking for the Christ child, and he pays attention to them. He knows exactly who they are in Matthew 2. These men were kingmakers, and they're likely already there when Nebuchadnezzar becomes king, which explains the skepticism when he demands that they tell him the dream as well. And dream interpreting and, and enchanting was, a, was an established uh, racket. I mean, the palace intrigue that's going on here, the power struggle uh, that's beneath the surface of these first 13 verses is hotter than Harry and Meghan's Hopra interview this, this past week. I mean, you should think of Kim Jong-un and his father's advisors and the, all of the stuff that, that goes on in a... In a in a pagan dictatorship like that. Verse 4 gives their response to the king's request. Look at you at verse 4. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. This is where it transitions from Hebrew to Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The wise men respond with a calculated no problem. You tell us the dream and then we'll tell you what it means. That's what we do. We're wise men. And they did it a lot. Uh, in fact, uh, fascinating archaeologists have actually discovered elaborate Akkadian manuals for interpreting various types of, of dreams. I mean, these guys had it down to a pseudo-scientific system and and their manuals typically consulted the livers of animals. So these manuals, it would be a picture of, of a liver. Like, like you might see the, the picture at a, at a butcher's uh, shop of, of, of a cow. You know, this is a brisket and this is a tenderloin. I mean, there was a picture of a goat liver. And, you know, if there was a spot here, this meant that. And if there was a line there, this, this meant that. And that was their normal method consulting animal livers, or the stars. And so they took a goat liver and they would cut it open and then they would, they would analyze it and they'd look at the movement of the stars, which is why astrologers are, are, are mentioned. And that may sound silly to you, and it is. I mean, liver gazing to determine one's destiny or dream interpretation is ridiculous. But you should not get the idea that these men were uneducated. I mean, the scientific part of their astrology that is recorded is, is astounding. I mean, they carefully recorded the movements of the moon and the stars and the, and the planets. Uh, John Whitcomb noted one Babylonian astronomer was able to calculate the length of a year at 365 days, 6 hours, 15 minutes, and 41 seconds. That's only 26 minutes and 55 seconds too long in 500 B.C. with nothing. Uh, another one uh, in 390 B.C. was able to measure the time lapse between two successive transits of the earth discovering the motion of equinoxes and was able to predict solar and lunar eclipses in 390 B.C. I mean, the point is the caliber of these men that Nebuchadnezzar had in his court were excellent. You can think back the, 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 the requalifications of the, the sons of Judah, what they had to be like before they could even enter into Babylonian college. I mean, these are the best of the best. The absolute top that the world had to offer. Which is why their declaration later that it's impossible for them to know is important. Right now, the king's not playing the game. View it at verse 5. The king replies to them, replies to the Chaldeans. The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb. Literally, I'm going to make you body parts. And your houses will be turned into rubbish. So the king says, tell me both, the dream and the interpretation. Or I'm going to pull you apart. And if you're able, there's an equal commensurate blessing. I mean, you're, you're going you're gonna to be exalted in the kingdom. And notice the wise men's response. Here you can really see that this is a power struggle going on. Notice verse 7. The wise men respond a second time. You don't do that to the king unless you have some kind of power yourself. Let the king tell the dream and we'll declare the interpretation. It's like saying, look, king, I know this is only your third year, but this is the way this deal works. You tell us the dream, we go to our divining books, and we come up with an interpretation, and we bring it back to you. I mean, we'll kind of give you a pass because you're new at this, but this is what's going on. It's possible, as I said, these men were hangovers from his father's kingdom, and, and this is why he's questioning their, their loyalty. And, and here's the moment that they can prove it. And so the king doubles down, verse 9, if you would. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed, until I forget the dream or nothing happens. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Just so you don't think that I'm making up the intrigue. Right there it is. And then they finally pull the curtain all the way back in their frustration feeling their backs against the wall. Look if you would at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is no person on earth who could declare the matter to the king because no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any soothsayer, priest, sorcerer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing that the king demands is difficult. There is no one else who could declare it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And they're basically saying, you're being unfair, king, to all the magicians. I mean, what you ask is not possible. You're violating the rules. And then their final answer in verse 11 is, there's not a man on earth that can meet the king's demand. No one can show it except the gods. And they might have been off about how many gods there were, but they knew where the source was. And when up against the wall, the wise men, the best that the world has to offer, declare what most people refuse to admit until they get to this place. Until they get to the place where they're unmasked, unveiled, nowhere to run. And it's at that point you admit, you really don't have the answers. I mean, people pretend to have the answers all the time. Just turn the TV on, the self-help gurus or the talking heads. But when you come to the place where you really have to know when there is a terminal diagnosis or even something as simple as being a missionary's wife in the middle of the night in Africa and you've committed your whole life to being there but now your daughter is going to be operated on there, in those moments things change. And looking for answers without God is nothing but a human cul-de-sac and it's just a dead end the purpose of verse 11 is for the pagans to admit what is true, that they're failures and when it comes to what only God knows. And the reason that God may be allowing all of your hopes and dreams to shatter is so you will stop looking in the wrong direction. And that's not being cruel, it's His mercy, because He knows it's a dead end. This whole scene ends in verse 13. Look at you at verse 13. So the decree was issued that the wise men be killed, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Whew. A lot of tension there. There's a crisis. How's it going to be resolved? Well, all of this is a setup for God to put himself on display through Daniel. Here's the disclosure. Here's how it's resolved. Look at the third lesson. Go to verse 14. It says, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he said to Arioch, the king's officer, For what reason is the decree from the king so harsh? And then Darioch informed Daniel of the matter. I mean, uh, Arioch is the king's guard, but the root word is to slay. So this is the king's executioner, chief executioner. He informs Daniel of the decree. Daniel asks the king for some more time. And then he says he'll tell him what, what he wants him to know. Now, I want you to think about how Daniel responds to this situation. I mean, he hears his own death sentence. He calmly asks what exactly is going on, tell me the situation, and then he declares by faith that God will declare the answer before he ever does. I mean, if you look at what, what he says here, he says that God will tell. And then he starts by telling other believers, his three friends, and then they all go to prayer together. I mean, this wise man didn't consult his library, but, but consulted God. Look at verse 17. And Daniel went into his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this secret. I mean, this serves as evidence that these men were not tainted by their three years of training in Babylon. They didn't run to the books. They ran to God. And then God reveals the answer in prayer. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Now, what would you expect Daniel to do with the, that declaration in, in verse 19? The mystery was revealed to Daniel. I mean, you would expect Daniel to do what I would probably do, jump up and then run to demand a presence with the, with the king. I mean, tell him the interpretation, right? I mean, there's a... It's a matter of urgency. Death sentence hangs over his head and his friend's head. That's not what Daniel does. There's something even more urgent for a believer than self-preservation or what others can do to you. Look at how verse 19 continues. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and said, May the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Daniel doesn't rush off. He pauses to praise. And he adores his God. May I say to you, that's how you and I should respond to a troubling situation. You pray, and then you praise whenever the answer comes. We go to God, and we, we plead with him to intervene on our behalf, and when he answers our prayers, we we run on with our lives and rejoice in whatever the answer is, whatever he's fixed. Don't be like the nine lepers of Luke 17. There were ten healed. One came back to give thanks to God. The other nine went on with their life. I'm healed. My job is saved. My wife and I aren't fighting any longer. My child was delivered. And we rush on. Don't look to the wise men of the world, look to God. But when you do look to God, don't move from supplication to solution without inserting praise in between those two things. Charles Spurgeon was in the process of explaining the gospel to a woman who was right on the edge of entering the kingdom. She's beginning to see and she's right on the edge of the the kingdom and she bursts forth with these words, Mr. Spurgeon, if the Lord saves me, he shall never hear the end of it. And Spurgeon said... That should be our attitude all the time. If you're saved, the Lord should never hear the end of it. And When he answers your prayers and meets your needs, he should never hear the end of it. And look at Daniel's first statement after the, the praise. It's not even about himself. Look at verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch from the king, uh, whom the king had appointed to, destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went in and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. And remember, Daniel's not part of this group. I mean, he gets lumped in because he's a junior member. He's going to get killed like the rest of them, but he's filled with grace toward unbelievers. He's not even concerned about his own, his own safety. And might I remind you... You have read the rest of Daniel. These same wise men that Daniel right here is is concerned about preserving, those are the wise men that send his friends into the furnace and send Daniel into the lion's den later. Think of the faith that's required in, in the second half of verse 24 when he says, don't destroy them, take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. I mean, Daniel prays, he asks not only for the interpretation, but the vision. God gives it to him, and he hasn't confirmed it's correct with the king yet. And remember, nobody knows what the king has has dreamt up to this point. And so he's going into the king with what God's revealed to him, and if it's wrong, it's going to be really ugly. I mean, Daniel is exercising great faith here. I mean, if the king was so angry at people that... Couldn't tell him what it was. He's going to tear him limb from limb. Can you imagine what he's going to do to somebody who tells him the wrong dream? And Daniel has no concern. Why does Daniel have no concern? Where's the faith? Is this like, oh, I'm just going to charge into this situation and, and I'm just going to hope for the best. Or, I'm really sincere uh, about God. I mean, faith is not that. It's not some mystical thing. Where is Daniel's faith? Well, he declares it in this prayer. Daniel has no concern and because his praise shows he knows something significant about God. If you look at verses 20 through 23, first, he says that God controls the eras of human history. Verse 21, he is a God who controls the times and the epochs. Second, Daniel knows this God enthrones and dethrones rulers. He removes kings and establishes them, including Nebuchadnezzar. And third, he knows that God knows and can reveal the unknowable. Daniel declares these realities to the king. Look at the fourth lesson here. Here's the detailed definition of the dream. Verse 25. This is comical. Look at this. Then Ariok hurriedly brought Daniel into the presence of the king. Daniel stops to praise the Lord, and then Daniel is more concerned about the wise men of Babylon, but it says Ariok hurriedly, brought Daniel into the presence of the king. Is he concerned about the wise men of Babylon? He's the executioner. He's not concerned. And he spoke to him as followed. Why is he hurrying? I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. This is comical. Ariok tries to take credit for finding someone who can interpret the dream. It's like he runs in before Daniel gets there Hey, king, it's your old pal Ariok here. Uh, I know you sent me out to kill everybody, but I've got something better than that. (laughs) While he draws attention to himself and his perceived abilities, Daniel does just the opposite. Look at verse 26. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Are you able... And look at Daniel's response in verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, your wise men are right. Neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar What will take place in the latter days? This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you're on your bed. While the wise men declare their inability, Daniel affirms that and affirms his own. Daniel says there is no wise man, magician, or astrologer that can show the king his mystery, but there's a God in heaven who can, and he's made known to the king. Daniel first corrects, the king's uh, location of false hope. He's still looking to men. And Daniel puts it in the right place before he ever gives him the interpretation of the dream. Turn from human wisdom and turn to the God of heaven. And if the Lord will truly help you with whatever your issue is, you must turn from whatever false hope that, that y- you have and you need to put it in the right place. Do you ever realize that maybe the reason you keep stumbling your are over things in life, stubbing your toe in life as you're looking in the wrong direction. The wisdom of this world is not going to change your life, but there's a God in heaven who can. Trusting in your own righteousness will not get you into heaven, but but there's a God who came to earth who can. I mean, turning to therapy is not going to fix whatever your emotional problem is, but there's a God in heaven whose word can Daniel takes no credit, but then he gives the interpretation. Look, if you would, at verse 31. After he corrects the king's gaze, he gives the, the dream. You, O king, were watching, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary, uh, extraordinary radiance, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. You're right to be afraid. The king of... Uh, The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued watching until a stone was broken off or cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed into pieces all at the same time. They were like chaff. the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that there was not a trace of them found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. Daniel describes the dream, and the dream was a giant statue with four parts. It had a golden head, a silver breast, a bronze legs, and then calves of iron with feet, with iron and clay, mingled together. And this statue is standing. Uh, and as it is standing there, a perfect builder's stone comes flying in like a, like a mortar and strikes the statue's feet and pulverizes it. I mean, blows it up. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar was, was frightened. And then that statue blows away all of the other kingdoms or all of the, the other parts of the statue and, and that stone grows and grows and grows and becomes a, a mountain that fills the entire earth. And so the interpretation is given in verse 36. If you go to verse 36. This was the dream. and Now we will tell you its interpretation for the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the honor. And wherever the sons of mankind live, or the animals of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar is relieved. <laughs> I'm not the whole statue, I'm not the stone, I'm not the chaff, I'm the head of gold. I like this interpretation. And there are four kingdoms described here. The Babylon is the head of gold, and God's the one that established the kingdom of Babylon. Don't miss that and then a lesser one, which is Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then finally Rome, the Roman Empire. Chapter 7 defines all of that, and we'll get into all of that detail when we get there. And this vision is broad, a broad history of the world empires described in this great statue. Now, one of the issues you run into in interpreting prophecy, we talked about this when we went through Revelation, is making too much of what's not said. And you don't want to delve into all of the the, the little details there, and apply your own interpretation to things. For instance, one commentator said the two legs of the statue, uh, which Rome represents, it does represent Rome, but the two legs of the statue, that's the east and the west uh, of the Roman Empire when it, when it splits. And my friend Joel James said, I mean, how many legs do statues of men have? I mean, they only have two. Well, maybe it's the east and the west, but just be careful interpreting more than, than Daniel did or more than God did. I mean, if God wanted to be more specific, he would have done that. This is world history. Primer. What we can see when you look at this statue is the statue's strength and splendor dissipates. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of gold, but the second kingdom is said to be inferior to Babylon. And then you go all the way down, the fourth kingdom is fragmented. The, it's, it's, it's iron and clay that's mingled together that doesn't stick to each other. So it goes from gold to silver to bronze to, to iron to iron plus clay. What you can see is the pattern of human history on a whole uh, degenerates. It's on the downgrade. Andrew Hill said, there is no progress gene implanted in history's womb that ensures some sort of infallible upward movement. I mean, we're amazed by technology that just keeps growing, growing, and growing. But, but is society getting any better with all of those advances? No. It's actually getting worse. And you builders know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You know it's true, that if any man builds his house on a faulty foundation, Jesus says on sand... Um, it, the house is going to fall because the foundation is the vital source that, that holds up the, a, a home, and the foundation of this statue is a mingled mess. It's very unstable. It's a combination of iron and clay which fail to blend together. It's like mixing mortar that, that doesn't stick. And all the kingdoms of this world are built on that crumbling foundation. But there's another kingdom that's not represented by the statue. Look you at you, verse forty four. Four kingdoms in the statue, and another kingdom that's not part of the statue. And in the days of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Just as you saw that stone was broken off out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is certain, and its interpretation is trustworthy. You are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, but that head of gold is going to dissipate and pass away. And that's going to continue to happen and continue to happen and continue to happen to world leaders and empires. But here is a hurled stone that strikes the feet of the statue and it all comes tumbling down. The first four are all fading kingdoms and here is the final kingdom that's coming. By the way, you should be faithful to the fading ones till the final one comes. I want you to notice this fifth and final kingdom has two aspects to it. Its initial form, its... It's a stone carved out of the mountain without human hands and, and then it's invasive uh, finality. It, 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 it starts small and then becomes a, a giant mountain. It begins a minor stone and it's different from the earthly kingdoms. No man has any part of the formation or the rise of this kingdom. It, it starts obscure, it seems weak as a simple stone and then the stone strikes the great image and becomes a mighty mountain and fills the whole earth. So it conquers all. It has a small beginning, but ends with final dominance. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The smallest of all seeds, but but it grows larger than all of the other plants of the garden. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast in dough. You can't even see it, a really small amount. Unseen, it spreads everywhere and permeates the whole loaf of dough. It's echoed in what he told Peter. Peter was a small stone, but Jesus would build on that massive confessional boulder that Peter stated that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will build my church, and here is the gospel going forward, consummating in the final kingdom. Now, we don't have time to go into all of it here, but there is an interpretive issue, or this is really where eschatology, the hinge of premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennial, and we'll get to some of that when we get to, to chapter 7. Everybody agrees that the stone here is Christ, and, but whenever it strikes the feet, when this event happens, when the stone strikes the feet of the statue, what is taking place? That's where the, the difference is. I mean, some say this is the cross, and the kingdom that's being described here is the church. And they say, you know, it's the Roman Empire. You go down to the, the iron. What event happens during the, the Roman Empire? The key words are, in the days of, uh, uh, or times of these kings. So during the Roman, Roman time. What event took place during the Roman Empire? And they would say, that's the cross. Therefore, that must be what Daniel's talking about. The kingdom of God was established at the cross and it's not a physical kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom. Well, the problem with that interpretation is that's very far from what you see happening in this dream. I mean, the stone smashes all the earthly kingdoms of the world and the whole statue comes tumbling down until it's like chaff that blows away. I mean, the statue is literally obliterated explodes, pulverizes, falling to the ground like dust and then disappears. And, and while no one would argue the cross had inaugurated God's kingdom and the most important event that ever took place, the Roman Empire lasted for another thousand years after the cross. Hardly a catastrophic explosion of all earthly kingdoms. And all the human kingdoms of the earth didn't cease even after the Romans. I mean, there's still kingdoms all over the world, kingdoms that are connected to the Roman Empire, and now they're all mingled together like iron and clay. And the kingdom of God didn't fill the whole earth like a mountain at the point of the cross, so that doesn't work. I mean, this is, this is not describing the first coming of Christ, but the second coming. This is day of the Lord language. When, when Christ comes and all the kingdoms of the earth are destroyed and Jesus' kingdom will reign over all, that, that fits a lot better And the little phrase, in the days of the kings of these kingdoms, simply means the the kings of the fourth kingdom, which are iron mingled with clay. So you start with Nebuchadnezzar, then the Persian Empire, then Greece, and the fourth is Rome, and Rome is described as iron, which is crushing, and it starts as pure iron, and then it just begins to, to dissipate, and it's mingled. And so Daniel says, in the days of those kings, the kings that are ruling at the very end of world history, There will be kings ruling whenever Christ returns, and that's exactly what Daniel 7 details for us. When you get to Daniel 7, you'll see the fourth beast in Daniel 7 is different from all the other beasts that are there, and and that beast will stretch to the end of the age, and that one crushing beast has ten horns, and the ten horns are the kings that come from that one king, so ten lesser kingdoms that come from the one greater kingdom being Rome. And, And with all that breathtaking revelation... Now Nebuchadnezzar has something to say—the declaration of this pagan king. Verse forty-six. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid humble respect to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering. He he still doesn't have all of his direction corrected, does he? But there's a change that's taken place. Look at verse 47. Then the king responded to Daniel and said, Your God truly is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, since you have been able to reveal this secret. And this whole story that builds in climax ends with Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar confessing the same thing about God that Daniel declares in praise. It's what the wise men admit they don't have. It's what Daniel's friends affirm in prayer, what Daniel declares in praise, that God governs all human history, and God alone grants knowledge and wisdom. And he will employ both of those things to bring about his eternal kingdom and the reign of Jesus Christ. And when that comes, all earthly kingdoms will cease. They'll all come to an end except his kingdom. You remember the three themes of Daniel? You'll hear me repeat it over and over. God is sovereign. God preserves his faithful ones. And God is bringing about his kingdom. And all three of those themes are in chapter 2. They're even confessed by this pagan king. Twice now, chapter 1 and chapter 2, end with a confirmation of those three themes. Themes. I love how Dale Ralph Davis ends his commentary on Daniel 2. He says the Roman Emperor Julian, who lived 332 to 336 BC, hated Christians. And he went to war with the Persians. And when he went out, one of Julian's followers found a Christian in Antioch and and he said, My emperor has gone off to to conquer. And he asked the Christian, What is the carpenter's son doing right now? As my emperor goes off to conquer. And the Christian calmly replied, The maker of the world, whom you call the carpenter's son, is employed in making a coffin for your emperor. And within days, news came of Antioch, to Antioch of Julian's death. And that's where Daniel 2 leaves us. Jesus has a coffin for every empire and emperor of the world. And he has one for you too. The only true security is in the kingdom of the carpenter's son not the kingdoms of the world or the wise men or your abilities or anything else. And the sooner you're brought to the place where you realize that and then you admit to that and you go to the same place that Daniel and his friends did, the God of heaven, the sooner God can answer and deliver you from whatever you're facing.